Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. This is a speaker meeting, so tonight Dwayne will speak for 10 minutes and then turn the meeting over to our main speaker, Karen, who will share her experience, uh, strength, and hope. So, Dwayne, you get to wear this awesome microphone. Okay. And take it away. Like this? Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Looks perfect. All right. <laughs> Hi, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Dwayne. Hi, Dwayne. Hi, Dwayne. Hey, Dwayne. Uh, I'm a little nervous, but uh, not as nervous as uh, maybe maybe have would have been. Um, it's really good to be here. It's been on my mind lately, um, like when I get to meetings, um, and not 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 so much in meetings, but uh, like whatever. I'll be having a, a busy or hectic day, and I'll get to a meeting, and I'll be like. It feels really good to be here because I can remember many, many times thinking that that was like the furthest place in, in the universe. I couldn't be any further away from like this moment here. Like you, you can't get there from here kind of a thing feeling. And uh, uh, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have that, uh, that terror and, and just lost hopelessness that I, that I did. Um... I don't know if I was born an alcoholic, but I definitely had trouble with uh, moderation from the get-go. Sorry, can you put your mic closer to you? They can't hear you. Hello? 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 Maybe I turned it off in my pocket. That could be. (laughs) Hello? 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 Can you hear me now? (laughs) Really? (laughs) It could be batteries. Hello? Good <laughs> luck. All right, so uh, I don't think that I was born an alcoholic, but I definitely had problems with moderation uh, from an early age. Um, when I was like a, a, a baby, my mom fed me carrots one day, and I refused to eat anything but carrots uh, from then on. And I uh, I literally turned orange, and she took me to the doctor in, in a panic, and, and he said, uh, just, just stop feeding him carrots. Um... <laughs> <laughs> then I switched to uh, frozen hot dogs and chocolate milk, but that's another story. Um, and uh, I was very scared, you know, like I remember one of my earliest memories was uh, I would have these dreams all the time where um, all the adult- adults were gone. And like, I'm like, shit, I don't know how to drive the car. How am I supposed to get to where I'm supposed to go? I don't know where I'm supposed to go. And uh, how do I, I can- I'm hungry. I can't reach on the stove. So... You know, I was scared, and uh, I had trouble with moderation. Um, and uh, um, so, uh, you know, my mom uh, was a single mom, and uh, she had a bunch of jobs. She had a, she worked at Mrs. Paul's Fish Stick Factory. She worked at uh, a furniture factory. Then she finally found a job where she could support herself and, and me, and that was dancing at a bar called Mickey's Mouse with the name Bonnie Lou Beaver, mm. <laughs> which was her real name. Uh, anyway, so my <laughs> my mom met a guy at uh, at work, and they fell in love and got married. And uh, at their wedding, um, uh, 
I remember at some point during the uh, like the reception party that the adults were not paying attention to the kids, and um, you know I was getting you know I loved getting into mischief, and uh, I drank a glass of champagne uh, off the table, and uh, I really liked the way it tasted, and then I pretty soon realized that I liked the way it made me feel. And so I started drinking all the glasses of champagne, thinking to myself, shit, why haven't they given this to me before? Why do we not drink this at every meal? <laughs> um, uh, I finished all the champagne I could find, and then I just started dr- drinking any, any glass I could find that had liquid in it. And um, they all did not taste as good as champagne, but uh, each drink added to the effect that I, I was looking for. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I remember thinking, like, why don't we have this at every meal, fuck, everything that was wrong in my life suddenly just fell into place, it was like magic, and, uh, um, I really liked that, that relief, and, uh, you know, uh, it was a few years between, from then until my next drink, which was, uh, like, junior high school. I was the live-in babysitter, and I really... I lived in, like, the, a rural part of Pennsylvania where, like, everybody had horses and cows, and I was resentful that I was the live-in babysitter, like I had anything better to do on a, on a Saturday night in Cowtown. But um, uh, I discovered that, you know, in the uh, pantry cabinet there was a, a liquor cabinet, and it was, like, maybe six bottles wide and four bottles deep, and I discovered that all the f- bottles in the first row were used for, like, my parents, and everything behind there was dusty and was never touched. So uh, I started hitting those bottles and, again, getting that relief that I found in that first drink. Um, and it's like, what kind of relief does a, a seventh grader need? I don't know. But uh, it, it felt good and it felt right. Um, so I, I really looked forward to uh, a babysitting night. And, and like, my life, uh, you know... Uh, just kind of like I, I, I was drawn to the stoners and the drinkers and, and the people who are like, I don't give a fuck, I don't need that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's get drunk. Um, and then around like uh, the middle of high school, um, uh, some of my friends, uh, they, they didn't want to party with me anymore. And, uh, and this goes, you know, this goes on. It's like, you know, uh, who needs the job? I don't need a job. It gets in the way of my drinking. I don't need the car anyway. It gets in the way of my drinking. I don't need these friends. Um, I uh, basically had become a full-time addict in uh, in North Philadelphia, and I got in trouble with the law, and um, I did not like uh, the Philadelphia jail system, so I moved uh, to um, uh, I moved to the counties and got on methadone. Got on methadone and uh, fell in love with a girl at the methadone clinic and uh, moved into her trailer. <laughs> and we, uh, <laughs> pretty soon we were drinking and using. And what happens when I drink and use? I get in trouble with the police and I found myself on probation and parole simultaneously in three counties on, and on house arrest in her trailer. And uh, that's when I decided that uh, maybe the California sun would fix me. And uh, I came out here and. Um, uh, the same shit happened, you know, me followed me, um, and I was getting in trouble with the law, and that's when, uh, I came to some meetings, I, uh, didn't really come, like, looking to get sober, I just came because the courts were like, you know, go check out these meetings, get this slip sign, I'm like, okay, I don't want to go to jail, I'll do that, and, uh, I would come in late, and, uh, I would leave early, I didn't raise my hand as a newcomer, because I didn't want anybody to notice me, um, 
and I, like I said, I don't think I was really interested in, in, in getting getting sober. But that's the it's not the first meeting I'd ever been to, but it was I can remember the first time, like realizing that uh, these people I can tell by the what they're saying that they have drank and used the way that I am using and drinking, and but they don't no longer feel the way that I feel, um, and that uh, that led uh, um, you know. To my kind of my ten year uh, experiment with the first step, and basically I can sum that up as uh, I decided that I wanted what you guys had, but I didn't necessarily needed to do what you guys were doing, and um, and what I was seeing what you guys had was kind of like material resu- results of doing spiritual work. I wanted like the exterior results without having to do the interior work, and. Um, uh, you know that didn't work. I didn't stay sober, and uh, I basically found myself um, basically homeless and sick in the hospital. Um, you know, kind of a, 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 a specimen for them to check out. They're like, "Oh, I check out how sick this guy is," and um, you know, they're sticking needles in me. They're lancing abscesses, and uh, and uh, I'm like, "Wow, this this is this is totally could have been avoided." Uh, you know, I, I, for the first time in my life, I realized that I was not going to outrun my problems. If anything, I was running headlong into them. And uh, for the first time in my life, I was really, really out of ideas. And while they're, like, digging around in my neck trying to find the vein to run the IV and all that, I said to the nurse, I said, you know what? When I leave here, I'm going back to AA, and I'm going to do whatever they tell me I have to do to stay sober. And she said, sure you are, sweetie. <laughs> And um, that's basically that's basically what I did. I don't know how long am I got on time here. A couple minutes. Um, you know, uh, I you know I hooked up with a sponsor and, and and I started doing the steps and taking suggestions and doing what he told me. And uh, you know, it's been just over 19 months that I've been sober, and as I I've been doing the steps over. And if I look back, I had no idea, really understood what I was doing. I was saying yes and going to do something. I didn't really understand what, what I was doing in the steps. And I think I was too scared to really disagree with it. Um, but I just did it. And uh, as I'm looking back, you know, I, I was getting results by just doing it, whether I agreed with it, understood it, wanted to do it, or didn't want to do it. And... Um, you know, I try to keep I try to keep that attitude today because you know you get a little sobriety and, and think you feel like you have some control over things, and all of a sudden now you know I have opinions and, and judgments and, and ideas of how things should be run and done. But um, I don't know. I just try to you know keep doing it <laughs> and let go of my ideas. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Karen, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Karen. It's good to be here tonight. If uh, Raise your hand in the back if I don't speak loudly enough for you to hear. Sometimes I start talking, and then it starts getting quieter. So I'll try to speak as loud as I can. Welcome to everybody who uh, has less than 90 days. I like the way this meeting does that, that you announce that. Personally, my feeling is that a newcomer is anybody who has not completed the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because until you've done that, you really don't understand this amazing way of life that we have to give to you, and you're on your path to getting there. So for anybody who's still on that path, 
I welcome you with all my heart. This is the most wonderful. I love Alcoholics Anonymous so much, I can't tell you. Thank you to Trevor, not only for asking me to speak, but I got lost on the way here. And so I'm calling him on the phone and saying, I'm on this street and show me. And he, like, walked me all the way through and got me here just on time. So thank you so much, Trevor. That was, that was great. Um, <clears throat> my sobriety date is March 20th of 1987. So I just, yeah, just began my 30th year of sobriety. And I'll tell you, I have always said I will do anything it takes not to go through that first year of sobriety again. <laughs> so if you're in your first year of sobriety, oh, my God, you know, just hang on. There were times in that first year where I thought, oh, thank God, this is so wonderful. And there were times when I thought getting sober was the worst idea in the world. But, you know, you just go through the ups and downs, and somehow, and I think it's because most of us have done our steps for the first time during that first year, but things just get easier. Things get so much easier. And my first year of sobriety, I felt like I can't think my way out of a paper bag. I went from somebody who would get in fights and bars if I heard somebody at the next table say something that offended me, you know, that was not my opinion. Mm. And I would get, and I mean, I have gotten into drag down fights in bars, and I get sober, and I'm afraid to go out of the house, because all of a sudden, reality is slipping in, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, what if I get on the wrong bus and get lost? <laughs> but that's just, you know, that first year of sobriety was so confusing to me. And I just put one foot in front of the other and got to meetings, and I went around to meetings, and I found meetings that I felt comfortable with. And we'll get to it later because I'll go through the regular format, but um, <clears throat> I have always liked you guys best. I've always known where to find you. I've always been attracted to you. I didn't particularly care about who was the smart kid, who was the popular kid, who was the jocks. If you were the party kid, I was with you. And we were friends, and that's where it went. And I just always have felt like I understood alcoholics a lot better than I do normal people. And I'm of the feeling, so, okay, so uh, I also like to say at the beginning that I have a sponsor. I think it's as important, if not more important, to have one at 30 years than it was. Well, there's nothing more important than having a sponsor in the beginning because, you know, my ego and my arrogance tells me, I know how to read. What do I need a sponsor for? You know? I don't need anybody to explain this book to me. But the fact of the matter is that it's not just the words, it's the experience, and it's that process of one alcoholic passing on what has worked for us to another alcoholic where the magic is in this. So anybody can read a book, but one alcoholic going through that with another alcoholic is where the magic is. And that identification and following the steps is what has led me to be able to stay sober one day at a time. So I got a sponsor to do that with me, so I have a sponsor today, 
and I am fortunate to sponsor many, many women in sobriety who also have sponsees, and I help them sponsor their sponsees the way my sponsor does with me. So it's this wonderful chain of one person giving freely what has so freely been given to them. There's not a lot of places in this world that you find something like that, you know? There's always a price to be paid. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have this wonderful spiritual thing that seems to be natural for us. I do believe that thing where it says, you know, we're bankrupt idealists. I think many of us, you know, I know for me, I was out there and acting bad and raising all kinds of hell. And inside, I thought, I'm a good person. I can do good, you know. And I wanted to do good. But I usually ended up doing bad. I usually ended up hurting people, and so, you know, here in Alcoholics Anonymous, there is a way that I think that bankrupt idealist can have a purposeful life, and that's a real gift. I got sober for the first time when, I got sober, I got, oh wow, I got drunk for the first time when I was 10 years old, and I remember it very clearly. I was vacationing with my parents in Germany, and it was Christmas Eve, and it was a huge Christmas celebration. And it was in a big hall, and they were um, serving wine with every course. And in Europe, you know, kids drink when you're little. So they would bring a different bottle of wine with every course, and, you know, about an hour into the evening, I was three sheets to the wind. And I remember looking around the room, and part of this is what my parents tell me I said too, but, you know, that I said, oh, you're the most wonderful parents in the whole world, and this is the most beautiful room I've ever been in, and... When I grow up and get married, this is where I'm going to come grow up and get married. See, right away, alcohol did that to me. It gave me the feeling that the world was full of possibilities. Alcohol started making promises. Alcohol said you can be anything, do anything, have anything you want. And you know, alcohol made a lot of promises to me throughout my drinking career. Very few of them actually came through. Our book is filled with beautiful promises, and most of them have come true for me, and I'm very grateful for that. But, you know, these, this is what alcohol told me. And I think right off the bat that I reacted differently to alcohol than other people do. I believe, I don't know if I <clears throat> believe that I was an alcoholic when I was born, but I do believe that there's something inside me that when alcohol hits my nerve endings, it just goes boom. Game on, time to party, love it, let's get more of it. And that's the feeling that I chased really for almost the next 30 years. So do the math. <laughs> but, um, the, you know, I did not become an active alcoholic at the age of 10. Uh, fortunately, I came back, and um, but right away as a kid, as a teenager, I was very rebellious. If you said black, I said white. I had that arrogant insecurity that teenagers have. You know, we think we know the answers to everything, and yet inside it's all this self-obsession. You know, how do I look? Who likes me? Da-da-da, da-da-da. 
You know what? Alcoholics aren't the only people who are self-obsessed. Alcoholics are not the only people who are spiritually sick. I know a lot of people who are spiritually at least as sick as I am, which is saying something, and they're not alcoholics. I know people who are insecure and filled with fear who are not alcoholics. I know people who are emotionally screwed up who are not alcoholics. I believe that there's something about us that alcohol works a certain way, and if we don't arrest it in time, and it does tell us, our book, our literature says, that we believe that some of us could have stopped early on if we'd wanted to, but an alcoholic of my type does not want to stop early on. An alcoholic of my type wants to keep going and going and going. So there I was as a teenager, insecure, self-centered. I became too smart for God. I was brought up, you know, to go to church, and I was brought up with a loving God. But I came, became too smart for God when I was a teenager. I thought, you know, if you're kind of weak, if you need, like, something to lean on and depend on, well, you know, good for you. You go ahead and believe in God. But if you're a smart cookie, like I thought I was... That you don't need a God in your life. Who needs it? Who wants it? All that goody-two-shoes stuff, that wasn't for me. And I wasn't buying what they were selling. So that was the picture of me as a teenager. You know, godless, uh, insecure, arrogant, self-centered, and really hadn't didn't have much purpose in life. Um, <clears throat> but I always knew how to find you guys, as I said, and I found some of those alcoholic tricks I remember when I realized that, you know, when you go to a party and you start getting that feeling like woozy and maybe a little sick to your stomach and I'm going to be sick. And I realized that the best solution to that was to have my date pull over to the side of the road. I'd lean out, make myself throw up, rinse out my mouth with booze, and I'd be good to go again for another couple hours. Wow, that changed my world, you know? The whole picture changed when I could get a few more hours of drinking out of a night. I also started having blackouts as a teenager, and if anybody's had a blackout, it's pretty much a sign that you're an alcoholic. Normal people don't have blackouts. Um, but I would I would come to in places that... I didn't know I how I got there with people that I didn't really know. And that started out fairly early for me. Um, and you know what? I used to think people were lying about me. When they would tell me the next day what I had done, i think, oh, they're lying because they want a little leverage on me. They want the goods <laughs> on me. So they're telling lies. Because, you know, the things they said I did, I knew better. I, w I wasn't brought up without values. My parents tried to teach me right from wrong. They tried to teach me it was that I should be kind to other people and, you know, all the good values. And, I again, I just wasn't buying it. That was goody-two-shoes stuff. But I didn't think I would really do things like steal my girlfriend's boyfriend or steal pills from every house that I walked into or, you know, just do all the kinds of crazy behavior that I did because I knew that wasn't right, and yet I did it anyway. And what that tells me in retrospect is that when I pick up a drink, not only do I lose the ability to decide how many more drinks I'm going to have after that, I lose the ability to manage my behavior in general. 
so that I may do something completely contrary to everything I know is right, and I have no way not to. I'm pretty powerless, because if anything stands between me and getting that next drink, it's meaningless to me. So all I want to do is get the next drink and keep that feeling going and going. Um, I got married fairly young, and I had a son. Uh, I kind of like to go through that what I was like thing um, in relation to the three pertinent ideas. Uh, It says, you know, um, boy, now I'm going to just go blank on it. But our adventures before and after made clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God couldn't would if he were sought. So let's go to A, that we were were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. So an example of unmanageability for me is during my career... I was drunk for me. I was uh, arrested for several DUIs. That was kind of my thing. And back in the day, they didn't automatically take away your license and put locks on your steering wheel and all that kind of stuff. So I'd been arrested for this DUI. Trevor's heard the story, I think. <laughs> and I was sentenced to go to a class, a drunk driving class. So I go to where they tell me, and it's a drunk driving class at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. So any of you know, it's a huge arena. And I drive up, and I get into the parking lot, and there are all these cones set up in kind of a, you know, a pattern. And I go in, and it's a huge room, much bigger than this. And as I walk in, there's a table full of booze sitting there. And the instructor starts explaining, remember, this is back in the 70s, so back in the day, this instructor starts explaining that what they're going to do is going to take two volunteers, a male volunteer and a female volunteer, and they're going to have them drive the course, and then they are going to feed that those people alcohol <laughs> so that the rest of the class can watch how the reactions change. Now they get sued silly if they did that today, but that was the deal. And as he's explaining it, like light bulb, you know, fireworks are going off in my head. I'm like, wow, free drunk. I can't believe it. <laughs> So the instructor asked for the female volunteer, and my hand just goes flying up. I practically dislocated my shoulder. (laughs) And he goes, okay, you. So I turn around to make sure it was me that he meant, and nobody else even had their hand up, right? (laughs) So obviously you guys were not in the room at the time. And you know what? In the beginning, it went great. I actually did better than the guy, which was always, you know, I, I, want, I always like to drink a guy under the table, right? Yeah. It's kind of always a goal for some of us. But, and so I, you know, I was doing well, and I was feeling cocky, and then it was like all of a sudden, blank. I, I have a vague memory of cones flying in the air. <laughs> <laughs> I have a memory sort of of the car going backwards and it wasn't supposed to do that. Crowd scattering. (laughs) 
long story short, I end up going home and spending the night with a male drunk volunteer. <laughs> yeah. Wait, and, and believe me, that relationship wasn't the shortest shelf life of many that I've had in the past. <laughs> At least I knew this guy a couple of hours. So, but, but anyway, the unmanageability of like coming to from that and not knowing where I was. I didn't know where he lived. I didn't know what town I was in. I didn't, and that had happened to me many times before. But my MO is still grab the keys, get in the car, and get the hell out of Dodge, right? Only, of course, they hadn't let me take my car home, so I had no way, I didn't even know how I was going to get out of there. I mean, it was this horrible, sickening feeling of helplessness and unmanageability. It was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do with that, this situation. And that was, I wish I could tell you that was the only time things like that happened to me. But I, I woke up in places that I didn't know how to get out of or, or came to in situations that I didn't know how to get out of many times. So, you know, uh, B, that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. I had a son when I was young, and I always said that, you know, that is the one thing I will not let my alcoholism interfere with. I don't care. Guys in and out of my life, jobs in and out of my life. I've moved all over the country, but I will not let my drinking, you know, I wanted to maintain this illusion to myself that I was a good mom. And so, you know, even when he was young and I'd be reading him stories going to bed, but I'd know the glass of Jack Daniels was in the other room, and I'd start getting antsy, and I'd start reading the story a little faster, and he probably fell asleep from the fumes coming off of me. But, you know, then then as he got older, um, I would call him from the bar and say, I know it's time for me to come home and make you dinner, and I'll just finish this drink, and then I'll be right home. And then 2 o'clock in the morning, He'd have the doorbell would ring and he'd have to go downstairs and help some stranger carry his mom up the stairs. And you know, I wish I could tell you that the first time I ever saw that look in his eyes of like, oh God, mom is drunk again, was my wake up call. Because I have heard women say that, you know, oh, that was my wake up call. I saw that look in his eyes many, many times. And it's so important for me to remember that today. Not only does alcohol have the power to take away the job, the car, the boyfriend, anything else, alcohol has the power to take away the one thing I love most in my life, the one thing that I say nothing will stand between me and my love for my son, and yet in reality it did. Alcohol is that powerful. Alcohol can take away anything that I think is important in my life. And if, after 29 years of sobriety, I picked up a drink, the same thing would happen again. And it would be just a question of time. Only this time it would be my grandchildren that whose hearts I would break and whose faces I would see that look in. So no human power. If there were any human power that I would have gotten sober for, it would have been my son. And it, it wasn't even that. Um <clears throat> And so, you know, God could and would if he were sought. I'm in the process of getting a new tattoo done, and that's going to go right down my spine. 
<laughs> it says God on the back because God has my back and has had my back. <laughs> but then underneath it's going to go could and would and right down the spine if he were soft. Because, you know what, for me, that's the critical thing. That's my part of the bargain. Um, I'm sort of skipping over, and I'll come back to that, because that's right there in that transition between step two and step three. So, you know, the end of it was not very much different than anything I've explained to you, except I'd lost almost everything. My son didn't want to come home and see me anymore. I hadn't been able to hold... Uh, a legal job, I had some illegal jobs, hadn't been able to hold the legal job in years. And by the way, you know, um, the whole, I'm the type of alcoholic like Dwayne, that if, you know, if I'm drinking and you say here's something that will make you even higher, I'm like, bring it on. You know, I'll do that. Of course I will. So by the time I came into these rooms, I was addicted to just about everything that was available on the street. In 1986, but but he, you know, so it's really hard to deny you're an addict when you're standing in line at the methadone clinic, right? I mean, it's pretty clear. It's 5:30 in the morning, you're standing there with a bunch of other low lives, you know, everybody's nose is running. It's pretty obvious. But alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Every time I went into a treatment center and they'd say, check off what you have a problem with, I'd be, boop, 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 alcohol, ooh, I don't think so. <laughs> Not checking that one off because I don't want you to take away my alcohol, right? <laughs> alcohol is the solution. Those other things, yeah, they're the problem, but alcohol is the solution for me. And I didn't want anybody fooling around with that. So anyway, you know, at the end, um, <clears throat> I just had a moment of clarity. I had come home. It was 6 o'clock in the morning, my least favorite time in the world. It still is, frankly. Not an early morning person. And, you know, the light was bad, and ooh, it was just horrible. And I had this feeling that, you know, desperation that happens, that comes when you know that there is just no place else to go. You've burned every bridge. And my sister called, and she, and she said, how are you doing? I said, something's wrong. I, I, you know, I said the words that I hear time and time again in these rooms make a difference. I said, something is wrong, and I need help. My life just can't be fixed. I've tried everything that there is, and I need some help. And from the moment I was able to say I need help, I started getting help. And I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous through, thank God, a very humble treatment program. So I went into one of those spin-dry treatment programs, and they said, we can teach you about alcoholism, and we can help you get sober, but we don't keep you sober. If you want to stay sober, you have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And here's a slip you need to get signed. And my first thought is, of course... <laughs> I've forged a million things. What I can put signatures on a slip, right? Not a problem. But you know what? I never forged one of those signatures. I went into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think I'd been court-mandated to go there before, but I hadn't really listened or participated. But this time when I came, because I had the gift of desperation, I listened. And when I listened, what I heard is you guys are the same people I've always loved to be with all my life. 
you're the funny people, the wiseacre people, that smart people, the sweet people, the people that I've always felt comfortable around. And the only difference between you and my lame-ass friends was that you were staying sober one day at a time. But you were doing it with the same people that we always had felt like doing it. So, you know, I got that sponsor, and I thought that was perhaps the worst idea I'd ever heard in my life, you know. But, but having the gift of willingness, I got that sponsor. We worked the steps. In step one, she was able to show me through the readings in the book and my identification with your stories. And I'm so glad when you share your stories that you shared the bad part, you know, what we were like as well as what we're like today. Cool. Um, because as sick as I was, I would not have identified if all I heard about was people being spiritual and doing the steps and taking their own inventory, I'd be, I'm in the wrong place. But you did that great mix of showing me what the problem was and then telling me what the solution was. So I got to see how alcohol was really more powerful than I was and how my life was unmanageable, and I got to put those two things together. Because in the past, you know what? There were times when I'd go, oh, yeah, I guess I'm an alcoholic. Ha, ha, ha. And there were times when I'd go, oh, my life is unmanageable. Here's the plan to fix it this time. (laughs) But I hadn't put the two things together of alcoholic and life is unmanageable, that made that work. So I came in and did the second step, and you know, We Agnostics is one of my favorite chapters in the book because I had been a strident agnostic for so many years, and here now I was going to have to believe in some kind of God. What was that about? But there's some beautiful stuff. Again, I had the open mind. But, you know, it says in We Agnostics, deep down inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And I thought back to when I was young. And I thought, you know what? I believed in a loving God then. And it was sort of a natural feeling. And it also says, who am I to say there is no God, right? And I thought of the millennia that of recorded history where there have referenced powers greater than us. I thought, who am I to say that's all a bunch of bunk? And finally, and the thing that really turned it for me was when it says, either God is or God isn't, what was our choice to be? And I'm so very grateful they used the word choice. It, It doesn't say, what did we logically think? You know, what did the Venn diagram tell us it was going to be? You know, what kind of... Lengthy tautologies can we put together. It simply says, what was our choice to be? So I could make a choice to believe in God. And I saw that God was working for you. And I saw that God was getting results for you. So God became my imaginary friend. And God is still like an imaginary friend. And I talk to God, and I have found a relationship with God that is beyond anything I could have imagined and is really probably in some ways different from that first God that I got to find in Alcoholics Anonymous, but in some ways it is essentially exactly the same thing. It is a loving God that will give me all the strength that I need. And that God gave me the strength to make the agreement in step three to go on and work the rest of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And I am one of those who has only done step three really once because I believe that the continuing development of my relationship with God, the daily struggle to do God's will and not my will and to stay out of self-will is now what I practice in step 11. So it came through. I did steps one, two, and three. My sponsor said step three just means you're going to work the rest of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did that, and because of that, having gone through those first nine, I came to 10, 11, and 12, which is the continuation of that new way of living that I got to learn. That's where I get to practice these gifts that you gave me on a daily basis. So that today my life is very, very different. Now, am I at five minutes almost? Almost, Almost, okay. I'd like to wrap it up because, you know, first of all, that son whom I loved with all my heart but never wanted to come back and see me anymore because he couldn't bear to see what his mom had turned into. Um, Today I'm an active part of his life. In fact, I spent the afternoon with him today before I came here. My grandchildren have never seen me drunk. Uh, In fact, I was the first person my son handed his newborn children to because he knew he could trust me today. He knew today mom doesn't have a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other and (laughs) trying to make them balance her so she stays upright. (laughs) So that son is an active part of my life today. During the course of my sobriety, I was able to be gainfully employed. I had my own business. I was able to sell that business. So now I'm retired, and I am in this wonderful position of being able to give a lot of my time to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I've been able, I have always been in service. For me, the service position that really, well, I, got, I started doing H&I, in the fall of 1987 was my first uh, H&I commitment. And it is the one service commitment that I have had continuously ever since. Now, I don't go into the same place, but I have always had an H&I commitment. It just is the one that feels right to me. But whether it's general service, inter-county fellowship board, of course it involves working with others, I tell The women that I work with, a well-rounded service life involves being of service at your meeting level. If they need you, don't hog the commitments, but be of service at your meeting level. Work one-on-one with another alcoholic and and have a service commitment at the greater AA level. Because you know what? Wonderful as our little meetings are, they wouldn't happen if people didn't do work at the greater AA service level. If people weren't GSRs carrying the message of this group to the district and this month to New York. You know, if people weren't intergroup people and on their fellowship board to make sure that schedules got printed and phones got answered. If people weren't in H&I to carry the message to the alcoholic who is confined and can't You know, I go, oh, I'm not sure I liked that meeting. Maybe I'll go to this meeting. You know, they don't have that choice. thing I learned in doing H&I is, you know, when you come to a meeting on the outside, it will go on whether you show up or not, pretty much no matter what your commitment is. But in H&I, 
we have to go in in pairs. And if you don't show up, those guys who've been waiting all week to get a meeting and to hear the message of AA get no meeting. So I learned to be responsible there. I learned to clean up my foul mouth there because we don't go in <laughs> dropping the F-bomb all over the joint, you know? <clears throat> I learned to stick to singleness of purpose out of respect for the other fellowships that go in and have a presence there. So all this service has taught me so much, and all of it also has given me this thing called a purpose in life. So that I really, every morning I wake up, I know people who have, um, <clears throat> you know, they retire, they don't have anything to do, they kind of wither away. Some of them put on their slippers and go back to alcohol, as our book tells us, see? So, and I have, every morning I wake up and I go, God, what are we doing today? What's Team God going to do today, you know? And I just know I have a purpose every single day when I get up. And it's to help another alcoholic. And, of course, to stay sober myself. This is how I get to do it. And that beautiful thing about that is that no matter what the assets and defects that you found in your inventories are for you, and I do believe we're all unique that way. We're unique as human beings. We're just not special as alcoholics. But, you know, we all have our own unique mix of assets and defects and things like that. For whatever your mix is, there's some service commitment that will work for you. There is something that's going to be okay. I've got sponsees who do teleservice, and they have wet drunks calling them up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, Poke me in the eye with a hot stick and call it even, you know? <laughs> but they love it, and it's great for them. So go out and find the one that you like, the one that you feel comfortable with, the one that you can carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous with. And you will find that you've got this purpose in life that will get you through anything. God has gotten me through anything. That first sponsor that I had... Um, <clears throat> said, you know, alcoholics are not, and not that we don't go outside for help when we need to, but she says, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous have gotten me through anything that has come my way. And that woman died of cancer with this beatific smile on her face. I want to tell you what, I saw her walk through it, and I've learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous too, because a lot of my people I know have been gotten sick, died, things happen, and we just walk through it. We're not special, we're not different than other people. All of the stuff, we're just like other people, except we can't handle the alcohol. Alcohol does something to me that gets me totally out of control and has the power to ruin everything I care about in my life, and the only place I've ever found a solution to that is in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So again, back for all of those of you who are new and starting on this journey, please believe that just for today. Not ha you can make a decision tomorrow morning to put on your slippers and go out and get drunk if you want to. But just for the rest of today, make the decision that Alcoholics Anonymous might have the solution for you too. And that's how I did it, one day at a time. So thank you very much for asking me and for being here tonight.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.